person. And it's no wonder that David and Jonathan became best friends. Uh, it's a sad story that Jonathan died in the same battle that Saul did. But in one of the last times that David saw Jonathan, they made a covenant. This happens back in 1 Samuel chapter 20. And Jonathan makes David promise uh, to not kill his descendants when he becomes king. Now, I was thinking it was a little bit weird. It'd be strange if my best friends came up to me and said, Hey, Addison, can you make me a promise? Please don't kill my family. Very, very strange. You have to ask a lot of questions what's going on there. Well, there's actually a good explanation for this, because as brutal as it was back in this time, it was very common when a new regime took over that the old kind of line, uh, the, the old dynasty, would try to kind of form a coup and take back the throne. So oftentimes the new dynasty would hunt down and kill everybody, adults, children, even infants, and, and wipe them all out. It was brutal, but this was just common practice as a way to kind of protect their throne. And so this is what Jonathan is, is trying to, to help David not kind of fall in with. He's, he's trying to convince David, hey, can you be kind to my family? Can, can you not wipe them out like this is normally done in this society when you become king? And so this is the point of the story in our passage when David wants to make good on that promise. And so he seeks out Mephibosheth, who is Jonathan's son, and yet, we're told earlier in 2 Samuel that Mephibosheth was just a child when this meeting took place. Five years, maybe even younger. And so, for all we know, Mephibosheth has no idea that this covenant has taken place. So Mephibosheth likely knows that he is seen, not just by David, but really by all of Israel, as public enemy number one. Uh, it's interesting that the text says that he lives in a, a town called Lo Debar, which literally translates to no word. No word or no saying. But commentators say that this was essentially meant, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna name a town no word, what you're really saying is this is the middle of nowhere. Like this is nowhere's good. So it very may well be that Mephibosheth was just trying to hide. He was just trying to stay under the radar and not be found really by anyone. And yet Mephibosheth gets summoned by a king and he really has no choice but to obey and come forward David. You can imagine that Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is probably shaking out of fear. He's probably understanding that this is probably my last day. This is my execution that I'm traveling to. And yet the first thing that David says is, Mephibosheth, don't be afraid. I can't help but imagine that David, in his kindness to be merciful to Mephibosheth, it was marked by gentleness and, and empathy. Don't be afraid. I know that you think you're my enemy, but you're not. I will only be kind to you. So we can actually, as Christians, relate to Mephibosheth in a lot of ways, and especially in this spot here. Romans 5.10 says that we were counted as enemies of God before we were in this family. You see, when we sin, sometimes we just treat it as like, oh, I broke a rule. Oops, shouldn't have done that. Maybe I'll get better next time. We don't really think about what, what we're saying when we sin. Because when we sin, we're effectively saying this to God. We're saying, God, I know you commanded me to do this thing, and I know that you said your definition of right and wrong is good and true. But honestly, I, I don't want to obey it. I'd rather create my own definition for what's right and wrong. I'd rather live by my standard for right and wrong. I don't want you to be the king, because as the king, you get to make the right to set good and bad, but 
God, I want to be. I want to be the king. I want to be the queen. I want to be the one to set the standard. I'd rather you be not on the throne. Doesn't that sound like a rebel? Doesn't that sound like someone who wants to form a coup against the king? This is the heinousness uh, and, and vileness of our sin. And if we, along with this, if we could really grasp God's power, God's perfect justice, His holiness, apart from Christ, we would be utterly terrified, just like the Mephibosheth probably was. But, just like David, God in Christ is kind to us. He's gentle. He tells us, do not be afraid. We see this gentleness actually talked about in Isaiah, where Isaiah describes the coming King David, who we know as Jesus. In Isaiah 42, 3, he says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wood he will not extinguish. Even the weakest person he will not break. Even, even the weakest vessel he will cast aside. He's gentle. He's kind. He sees our evil. He sees our rebellion, but he has mercy on us. He says to us this morning, no matter how, how bad we think we are, do not be afraid. I'll only share your kindness. If we go back to the narrative, we see that David does much more than just assure men to the fish that he's not going to kill him. He actually lavishes several gifts on him. He gives him all of Saul's old land, gives him all of his old wealth, which would have been a ton of money, probably more than Mephibosheth would have known what to do with But Perhaps the even sweeter, more tender, more personal gift that David gave to him was to ask him to eat at his table. Now this would have been really incredibly significant for actually a few different reasons. And it's difficult for us in the West to see this because there's a lot of honor-shame dynamics going on here. So uh, let's go back and try to pick up some of these kind of dynamics that we might have missed the first round through. So we already know that Mephibosheth is seen as the enemy of David, so already, just being in Saul's line, there's, there's shame that, that comes along with that. We saw that he's in a place meaning kind of nowhere, so he's not living in any, any place that's significant. There's no honor in this town that he lives in. But we're also told that he was lame or crippled in both feet. Now, we have to remember that in this culture, in this agrarian society, if you were a man and you couldn't physically work the fields or be a shepherd, you were seen as not just economically useless, like you couldn't hold a job, but you couldn't fulfill the role that, that you were divinely given to fulfill. And, and this would have actually come with a lot of shame. And Mephibosheth, you see, is, is very aware of his shamefulness. When he comes to David, he calls himself a dead dog. Remember, back at this time, dogs aren't like a fluffy member of the family. They're, they're just kind of animals. It would be something like saying, like, I'm a dead rat. So he understands his status in society. But not just that, he, he, it says he, he fell on his face. And, it, you know, maybe some of this was because he was afraid, but actually, a commentator say that this was a way for David to show his relative dishonor compared with David's honor. So David is, is probably standing up, his face is held high, but Mephibosheth literally puts his face to the ground, showing that he, he almost doesn't want his face to be shown in front of the honorable king. So what, what does this have to do with him being invited to David's table? Well, to eat at, at someone's table, especially an honorable person's table, was one of the most uh, clear and effective ways to give someone honor. 
it's not really a big deal in our society to eat dinner with someone. Maybe if you eat dinner with someone famous, it's a big deal, but if, if anyone in this society got to eat dinner at David's table, it would have revolutionized their lives. It would have immediately changed their social standing. So by inviting Mephibosheth to eat, he is not just conferring one of the highest honors, he's erasing this life of shame that Mephibosheth has gotten accustomed to. His whole life would have been changed. I mean, the, the closest modern equivalent, like hypothetical scenario I can think of is, like, imagine you got canceled for something you said or something you did, but this is like, to the max, like, everyone knows who you are. Your face is everywhere online. Everyone hates you. You're seen as a menace to society. Um, and you're recognized everywhere. You can't hold a job because no one wants you to be associated with their company. No one wants to be your friend because no one wants to share the shame with you. But then one day, someone that everyone in society loves, Taylor Swift, maybe, <laughs> she, she meets you, she befriends you, she comes to your Chiefs football games. <laughs> but she, 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 let's say she buys you a house next to hers so that, and she gives it to you so she can hang out with you all the time. She goes on all her social media feeds and, and, and tells the world, hey, this person, they're actually a good person. You should give them a second chance. And, and all of a sudden, life opens up for you. Your, your, your shameful status is, is put in a new light. You're given honor. You have wealth. You can have friends now. You have meaningful work that you can do. It would totally revolutionize your life. I don't even think this, by the way, matches the honor that would have been conferred upon Mephibosheth. Brothers and sisters, we can, we can relate to Mephibosheth's story in this way as well. Because of our sin, God tells us that we brought dishonor not only onto ourselves, but onto God. You see, we were made in God's image, meaning that we are meant to reflect God, His reputation, His character to other people. And when we sin, through our anger, through our impatience, through our injustice, through our, our hatred, our jealousy, we actually show other people that what, what God is like. And we're actually showing a false image of God. We're bringing Him dishonor. And yet, what we come, what we see when we come to the Bible, we, we see and we find Jesus eating meals, sharing a table with the worst of sinners, with the prostitutes, with the enemies of the state, with the traitors. This is why the Pharisees were so upset with Jesus. It's not just that he spent time with these sinful people, these dirty people. By eating with them, he was conferring honor on them. He was giving them a new status, giving them dignity, something that seemed to everyone else to be upsetting the social order of society. And you see, this really is also a picture of what Jesus has done for us. He invites us to his table, metaphorically, but also literally. Metaphorically, by becoming united to Christ, he erases all of our shame. He no longer sees us as sinful, shameful, rebellious people, but as honorable dignified, valuable people. As much honor as, as Jesus brought to God by his perfect life, that's the honor that Jesus now bestows on us. We, we've been metaphorically invited to the table. But we've also been quite literally invited to his table. The new heavens and new earth are described as a feast where we sit at the table and Jesus serves us. <clears throat> but not just that, when, when we come to the communion table, Jesus is inviting us to eat a meal with him. You see, communion, it's not just a ritualistic way 
to remember that Jesus died for us, something real is happening. God, through the pastor, when he breaks the bread and offers the cup, Jesus, through the pastor, is inviting you to eat with him, to honor you, to bless you. He says to you, come and eat at my table. If you feel like you're living a life of shame, if you feel like you're struggling with self-worth, come to my table. Let me show you what I think of you. That's what communion is. And it's unfortunate that we're, we don't have communion today or a great application, but next time we do, remember what it means to be invited to someone's table, the honor that it brings. Come to my table. That's what Jesus says to us this morning. But we also see that Jesus, I'm sorry, that David in this narrative doesn't just ask him to have one meal with him. I mean, that would be revolutionary in and of itself, but he asks him to eat his table regularly, often, always. Now what this really means is actually made clear in verse 11. It says that Mephibosheth ate at the table as one of the king's sons, one of his children. We know that Mephibosheth can't work, right? But I find it interesting that when he comes to David, he, he offers him as his servant. He says, here is your servant. But we know that he, he can't really offer much service because of his physical condition. But David treats him like a son, not like a servant. You see, this is the difference between a servant and a son. A servant is kept around because they work, they're useful. But children are, are not useful I'm learning that as a father of uh, an 18-year-old. Griffin is not useful whatsoever. But you know what? Like, he doesn't have to be. I'm not, I'm not expecting him to be useful. He's my son. This, his status as my son is not jeopardized by any lack of usefulness whatsoever. Mephibosheth could eat at David's table to live with him free of charge. It didn't matter that he couldn't work. Again, like Mephibosheth, we are, we are like him in this way as well. As human beings, just, just as being creatures, we have nothing to offer God. In one sense, just by virtue of being human, we, we can offer, what can we offer God that he doesn't already have? Job 41.11 um, says this, God is actually speaking to Job, and he says, Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Right? Even in our offerings, of like God could just create money out of nothing. He doesn't need our gifts. He doesn't need your, your service to him. He could raise up someone else to do the service. He could do it without people. But in another sense, as sinners, especially, we have nothing to offer God. We're not useful. Apart from Christ, all we do is sin. Even the good things that we, we think we do, apart from Christ, they're self-motivated. They're all about us. They're all about us feeling good or us um, improving our reputation. So if you have come this week feeling ashamed, if you feel like you're just screwing up your life, if, if you can't kick that one sin habit that you feel doesn't qualify you to even come to church or read the Bible or come to the table, there's good news that you're, you're a son, you're a daughter. You're not a servant. Just as I would expect Griffin to be useful, God doesn't need you to be useful. Obviously, he wants you to grow to be more like him. He wants you to be closer to him, to reflect his image, but that's not his basis for accepting you. 
fact that you actually can't offer God anything is some of the best news that we could receive, both as finite creatures, but also as sinners accepted just by sheer kindness and mercy. So yes, keep fighting, keep struggling in your sin, but not because you've got to work, not because you have to overcome it in order to be in the family. You're already in the family. Ironically, it's when you realize that you're already a child and you already have that honor conferred on you. Ironically, that's actually where you find the strength to overcome those sins. Do not fear. Eat at my table. Be my child. But I have to ask one more question. Why does God act this generously towards us? Why does he do that? Well, in, in the narrative with David and Mephibosheth, we're told that it was because of David's kindness. But this word in Hebrew actually is very rich in meaning. It's some of you probably know this. It's chesed. It means covenant kindness. It's not just arbitrary generosity. It's actually kindness that's in line with a promise previously given. And so David was kind to Mephibosheth because he was fulfilling his promise to another, to Jonathan. Again, this is true of us as well. Just as David loved Mephibosheth on behalf of someone else who died. The reason why God has shown us this radical kindness is because of a covenant where God has made us promises on behalf of another who also died in our place, Jesus Christ. You see that there's a difference as well between Jesus and David. David was able to do this kindness freely. It, it, it didn't seem to cost him much. He already had a ton of wealth. But you see, for Jesus, the only reason why he could say, don't be afraid, is because he was terrified of the garden. He sweat blood, he was so scared. The only reason that he can tell us, eat at my table, is because when he was at the table with the disciples, he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. The only reason why he can say to us today, be my child, is because on the cross the Father turned his face away. Brothers and sisters, isn't God kind to us? Isn't he good? Let's live in light of God's covenant kindness, his chesed this week. Remember these three things that God in Christ says to you. Just a small application. When, when you're traveling to work, or going to school, or you have a moment alone and the kids are napping, just remind yourself of these three statements that God says to you in Christ. Don't be afraid. I will only be kind to you. Eat at my table. See how, how much honor I place on your life. Be my child.